1: Good day good people. My name is Brad King and you are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast which is now part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on day 223 of the pandemic, just about 13 days until the election. I hope you have your voting plan in order. Hope you're wearing a mask, socially distancing, washing your hands, all of those things because frankly Max and I are going ape shit. We need to get outside and to do that we need your help. Great show today, Alicia Bahak, whose book Mama G is out right now, is on the program. Alisha was born in India but brought up in Minnesota. And she has such a fascinating life story. She earned her MFA in creative writing from Farley Dickinson, and she teaches at Rutgers. But she's an RN by profession, and she still practices at Robert Wood Johnson Children's Hospital in New Jersey. How those two things come together its a big part about what we talked about on the show today. But we'll get to that in just a few minutes. First, we have a little business to cover. As you know, we do two shows every week on Monday and Thursday. You can do two things to help this show continue to grow. Leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friend. We also host a monthly happy hour, and you can find all the details out about that at thewritersjam.com. We're getting ready to announce our November happy hour very soon. If you want to buy any of the books of people who have been on the program, click on our bookshop link at the website. When you do that, two things happen. You both support local and independent bookstores all across the country, and we get a little scratch, helps keep the lights on here in the bunker. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. In that, you'll get book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, and other stuff happening around the web that we think are cool. You can support the entire Solid Listen network by clicking on the Patreon button. For just a couple bucks a month, you'll get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and some bonus content. Okay, today's rant is going to be short and sweet, because I sat down and tried to write something profound to say on this subject. And if you've listened to the program at all, I think we can all agree I am in my best when I am talking from my heart with some basic notes, and not when I have things scripted out. So today we're going to talk about class which is a theme that has been very important on the show recently, but it's been really important in my life, particularly in these last four years as I've gone through trauma therapy. So here's why. For years, the anger and shame and embarrassment of being working class drove my interactions in the world, and they were not always great interactions. I had a chip on my shoulder. I was not present in my own life. Everything was combat with me. The world felt very heavy. And I can tell you the first time I remember that being an issue in my life. I lived in a place, Paxton Woods, in a little town, Loveland, Ohio. And when we moved into Paxton Woods, there were about 13 or 14 houses in this thing that was woods. Everybody's house was kind of the same, all that stuff. And when I was about seven or eight, nine, they basically started knocking down all the trees in the back of the neighborhood. And when they did that, they did a thing called homorama. I don't know if you guys have anything like that where you're from, but where I'm from, essentially it was developers would go in and build these gigantic houses. And they transformed Paxton South, which is what they called it. We Paxton Woods suddenly became Paxton North. And now there was a new thing called Paxton South. I'll Understand, there's like 50 houses So all these houses are on top of each other But there's literally a divide in the middle of this place And all these houses in the back are brand new And they're huge, five bedroom, two story, full basement Sitting on an acre of land And Homorama came two years in a row So suddenly this little neighborhood turns into this gigantic place They also built facilities like pools tennis courts, all that kind of stuff, and they put locks on them. And the reason they put locks on them is because people who lived in Paxton South could use those, and people that lived in the original Paxton couldn't. So at the age of seven or eight, without us moving anywhere, without us doing anything, we suddenly became the people that were not allowed to use things in our neighborhood because of who we were and where we lived and all of that stuff. And I remember that. I am still angry about that today. When I tell that story at parties, when I tell that story to people, it has a visceral impact on me. And that was the beginning of many of those things happening throughout my life. Some we talk about today on the show, some you've heard. Everywhere I went, I fought. I fought the world. I fought people. I fought bosses. Everything... I saw, I viewed through the lens of that 8-year-old kid who was told that he couldn't use things because of who he was and where he lived. And so when I tell people, look, I understand this white working class rage. I get it. I get it. I lived it. 100% understand it. I grew up around it. I have friends that were in it. I have former coaches that lived that life, and I understand it. But the reason I talk so much about class on this program, because it damn near killed me. That anger and rage damn near killed me. It, it wrecked my life. It ruined every relationship I ever had because I couldn't ever get out of it until I started this trauma therapy, until I found somebody who could help me understand that the rage is real, but there's different ways that you can deal with it, which sounds ridiculous, that somebody didn't know that was a thing. And I would like to think that I was nice and empathetic throughout my life because I have friends and people in my life who care about me and all of that kind of stuff. But I didn't have the tools that allowed me to access that in a meaningful way to do it with purpose. And so I talk a lot about class on this show, and even during the interviews, because it was been through trauma therapy that I've developed tools to be able to understand that anger and shame, and rage, and use it not to fuel me fighting the world, but to connect and understand other people's story in a different way without it being filtered through me. And that's something that I know I wasn't able to do purposefully when I was younger. And, you know, when things were going well, I could do that because I would act like a normal, regular human being. But when the trauma flared up, when I got triggered... I would go back to that 8-year-old kid and you know all of that sort of anger and rage and shame and embarrassment would cloud everything. And so it's been really important for me on the show, particularly cuz I'm a guy and you know I roll around in cowboy hats and cowboy boots and got leather jackets and shit like that. It is important that people that look and sound like me Talk about this stuff and make space to talk about it, particularly to other guys, and particularly to other guys that look and sound like me. But I can tell you, I have these conversations with my friends, and my friends are a diverse group of people. Like men in general have a hard time tapping into those things and using them as a source of strength and not looking at it as a source of weakness. So that was really important for me to call out today because the theme has been developing on the show. You're going to hear it a lot more. You've heard it a little bit already with interviews with like Lily Danziger, but I just wanted to talk about that today because people will tell me both on the show and off the show that I'm a good interviewer and that I connect with people and I make them feel, feel comfortable and we don't really talk about why that is and I think that it's important Because that took a lot of work, both professionally it's taken a lot of work, although I'm a bullshitter. So sitting down to interviewing people is like one of my favorite things to do in the whole world. But I also wanted to talk about the emotional labor and work that goes into doing that because it's important and it's important for men to talk about that. And I got a long way to go. I got a lot of stuff to do, but I really like the fact that I've gotten to where I am right now. I know you don't come here for these rants. I know lots of you skip forward. But it is the, that work, that purposeful work, to help understand the class, anger, and rage, and all of that stuff, and to use that to power empathy, and to use that as a way to see people and hear their stories and make them feel seen is just one of the most profoundly happy things that's ever happened in my life. And I know that you don't come here for these, but I appreciate you listening. But now we'll get to the business at hand, which is my interview with Alicia Haak.
2: Um, I live in um, a place called Montgomery Township. It's, um, in between Princeton and Hillsboro.
1: Okay. So yeah. you're you're like is that no, that's north, yeah?
2: Well no, they call it central Jersey. Oh it's central. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I mean if you know if you know where Princeton University is, I'm literally like three minutes from there.
1: Oh that's nice.
2: Yeah. I mean I don't really go, you know,
1: of sure. course
2: sure. I don't go to Princeton University. But
1: <laughs> Sure.
2: But it's it's all the only real land landmark people know because this is just a tiny little town.
1: Yeah. It's really weird. The, um, the, the particularly Ivy league towns tend to be at least the ones that I've been to, I've been to a couple and it's like always there's this working class town and then like this gated beautiful place.
2: Well, have you ever been to Princeton? I have not. Okay. Nope. Not like that at all. Princeton really? is a very she, town. Really? The whole town is like that. And it's very Princetonian, the entire, <laughs> you know, the way people live, the way they dress, the way, you know, the, so I do not live in Princeton because not, I'm just not, I'm definitely not a Princeton kind of person. I'm more of a regular, you know, I mean, eventually when you do get a chance to read my book, you'll see I'm from, you know, the Midwest. I'm sure a very Midwestern average kind of person so no but I mean it's pretty it looks you know it's very beautiful I guess if you wanted to walk through it you can look at but it's you know expensive and old stately houses and everybody dresses like old money and you know you know what I'm talking about just watch a movie
1: (laughs) I mean I lived in Harvard Square for a year okay then
2: you know exactly it's exactly like that Yeah, that you know i've my i've been there my sister my friend used to live in boston and yeah it's exactly like that
1: it's so like when i i worked at mit and i was like oh i want to live in you know well one it was you know of just a few blocks from where i work but i was like oh i want to live in harvard square like i've always heard about harvard square and i got this apartment that was ridiculously expensive and it was very tiny and like you never got to meet anybody because everybody else lived in like a million dollar home. Like they didn't want to talk to the rental people.
2: <laughs> no, they don't want to be friends with us. No. <laughs> I, have- moved,
1: I moved over to East Boston as quick as I could and was like, okay, this feels better. Like I moved into a Caribbean community and was like, Yeah, right. This the, I found home.
2: Well, you know what I would say? I would say that, yeah, it's true that I don't like to make, you know, super generalizations, but there is you know, uh, there is a sense of pedigree with those Ivy League schools. And, you know, there is a a, a particular kind of person that really is comfortable in those uh, environments. And I'm just not one of them. It seems like you're not either.
1: <laughs> it's so funny. I've told the story on the show. When I worked at MIT, I was in the middle. I was on the executive team at this magazine and okay. was up for a promotion to be the vice president of new media. And my boss, who was eventually fired, literally said in a meeting, "You don't have the pedigree for this job." To which my <laughs> response, my response was, "You know I'm not a dog, right? <laughs> like the only time we talk about pedigree is when we're like doing stuff with animals, and I am not an animal, like <laughs>
2: right, right. Well, he must have been like, I mean, in Europe that's common, right? People talk about that all the time."
1: sure i mean like my other boss was educated in oxford and he was british but he also was not of the like he understands social class as a construct and not a real thing Exactly. (laughs) it's not like genetics like exactly
2: i know it's so funny i just uh, it's it's hilarious how people you know their reality can be so different for people in different and that is one reality I don't even know how how you would function like that because you would have to tell yourself that you're better and I don't know how to say that I mean I I'm good at something but to say that you're better than someone else is something I don't know that's just a hard concept for me to really kind of put in my head
1: uh, it is it's not for me when it's a thing that I've earned, but there's a lot of white folks out there that do that and don't realize they haven't earned the stuff.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if it's something that you do, but to say that you're essentially a better yeah. person than someone else is a little odd, you know? Yeah, but that's what
1: I mean. Like that's, but if you, you know, if you were one of those white people that sort of uh, don't pay attention to invisible structures like class and gender and identity and all that stuff. And like, you're on third base I mean, I understand why people don't see it. I, I just don't understand why they don't see it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. Yep, I understand.
1: And, you know, Absolutely. not that I'm perfect with it, but, like, you know, if you've been around a little bit and you just talk to folks, you're like, oh, I didn't earn any of this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember ever taking a test. I just assumed that. That's really bad.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so true. That's funny.
1: So you're out there. Where are you originally from?
2: Okay, so originally I'm from, uh, my, my family arrived to Minneapolis from um, a place in India called Chandigarh, which is in the state of Punjab. If you I mean, not everybody knows a lot about India, but the state of Punjab is up in the north. Yeah. And um, I was born in a city called Chandigarh, which is the capital of that state. And then we arrived to Minneapolis on uh, 19 in 1963 Thanksgiving Day.
1: Wow. How old were you when you got here?
2: Uh, Now you get to find out my age. Um, (laughs) um, I was uh, just a toddler. I was, I had just turned, I was one and a half maybe. So So you like,
1: yeah, your memories are of Minneapolis.
2: Exactly. And I think I didn't really have any uh, memories or any, uh, yeah, I had no memories of India until I actually went there as an adult after I got married. Yeah, And, you know, and um, that was what 25, when I was 25. So I'm 58 now. So I, I have a lot of memories of India now, but they're all post, yeah. Uh, post-immigration.
1: Yeah, I mean, I get you, as a visitor, as the rest of us would experience it.
2: it. Yes, you know what? Thank you for saying that because it is really interesting because, you know, when I'm here in this country, you know, a lot of people, I would say, you know, majority of people, you know, uh, see me as, you know, someone who came here like an immigrant or a fam, you know, family immigrant or something. So they'll, you know, they'll say, Oh, the Indian lady or whatever, which <laughs> is fine. I mean, I right. don't, that doesn't bother me. It's fine. But when I go to India, you know, I'm an American. Yeah. So they, and Indians never accept, you know, they, they call you American. And rightly so I speak with this accent. And when yeah. I speak Hindi, I speak Hindi with an American accent.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: So, you know, it's, I, I guess I'm a, I'm a citizen of, of both i don't know of the world
1: (laughs) yeah i mean it's one of those where you're like i feel a little bit about that about my town in appalachia and that you know i left i mean i grew up there but i left and even when i was growing up there the joke was always my friends called me the professor like it was very clear that they were like you know you like you're not gonna stay here right like it was like sort of a compliment but sort of not and so I tell folks, like I'm of the place, but I'm not, or I'm from the place, but I'm not really of the place. And it's a it's a exactly. weird existence to both love it and feel comfortable there, but also be on the outside of that comfortableness.
2: I I, I we know we understand one another.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think that that is a, one of the premises on the show is that I think people who are like that become writers. Like when you are on the outside of a thing, you're always sort of looking and trying to understand what's happening.
2: Right. I agree with you. Yeah. So
1: did you have brothers and sisters?
2: Yeah. So, um, I do, I have, I, I, I had, when we moved to this country, there was uh, a total of seven children. Whoa. And, um, then, um, my, um, my, my when my mother died at the age of three which is the premise of this you know the book I wrote it starts out there Um, am at, at the time of her death there were seven of us that she left and then my father eventually remarried and um that is sort of when my life sort of did a flip and I think her death actually was really where it did you know it really changed but then when he remarried it changed again and then um the birth of my half-brother who I um, I don't really keep in touch with anymore because not, not that's very recent. That's within the last year and a half. Um, uh, um, I, I, he was number eight, and he was, uh, you know, I think we, we always thought he was our brother, and we never saw him anything else, but apparently he did not consider himself a brother, so he decided to disengage. So (laughs) I guess I have, there's seven of us all (laughs) together.
1: And and like how, like, where were you in that? Like middle, beginning, end?
2: I'm the end. I was the the youngest. Yep. And I, in fact, they used to call my nickname was baby. They used to call me baby all the time, but I outgrew that thankfully because that's a little embarrassing to be you know, in school and people calling you babies, <laughs> but yes, I was the youngest of the seven. So my mom's last child. Yeah.
1: Were you guys close? Like seven is hard. Like there, that's a lot of age difference to be going on.
2: Right. Right. So, you know, um, I think, I, I think we were close because, you know, we, have, we had experienced this really traumatic event and my oldest sister was 17. She's, her name's Miriam. And then um, I, I was the youngest and she was about, um, she was, uh, she is about 16 years older than me. So um, there's a huge range of ages that start from, um, from 17 to all the way down to three. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, we were, we are, and we were very close. We don't get to live close to each other, but we do maintain a strong bond. I mean, it's not like we talk to each other every day. It's not like that. We have our own lives, but there is a very strong bond because of, uh, you know, we had a very strange, you know, sad, scary, strange, uh, difficult event early, very early in our lives. And I think that really changed us. Yeah. And one of the changes was that, you know, um, it, it brought us together. And I think, um, I think that's remained, which is really <laughs> so wonderful. Cause you know, if you don't have a mom and um, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about how I really didn't have a father either. Then uh, my mom was gone and really all we had was each other. So yeah, I, I think that we're close in a very profound way.
1: Uh, what were you like as a kid? Like, so
2: what was like... I like as a kid? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I was a child that would not be accepted in today's standards <laughs> because I was, so I was growing up. So I had this huge family, right? So everybody thought it was a lot of fun. And I think, you know, one of the tags of my book is not a typical immigrant memoir <laughs> because, uh, you know, we were talking about pedigree earlier. And, you know, people expect a certain behavior from Indians. You know, they expect that, you know, we all are doctors or engineers or, you know, I went to Harvard or, well, none of us did that because <laughs> <laughs> we were very atypical Indian immigrants. We just, you know, we basically were just trying to, you know, get through this terrible trauma that we had experienced. And I don't even to say my, I mean, it's hard to even call it trauma because I don't really view bad things like that. I don't, I don't view negative things in a way that is trauma sounds too, uh, it, it sounds like it's something that takes over your entire life. And I don't see it like that. And I don't see anything that bad that happens in my life. I don't see it as, oh my gosh, that just took me down. You know, it is a bad thing, but thankfully I had these great brothers and sisters and I got through it and we got through it together. And as a child, though, my way of coping was, you know, going back to your question was not necessarily what is acceptable. Like I, I did a lot of things like beating other kids up, uh, <laughs> calling names, getting into trouble, doing lying a lot. Um, I sort of, you know, just, and I was, I would say I was kind of like a jokester, Um, I, you know, I think that's where I developed my sense of humor was I had to start laughing at things because I could, I had to, eventually I couldn't beat people up when they would make fun of me or call me racist names, which I'm not going to mention on this because I don't, we're not supposed to say those names, but the N word and other words like that. Um, So um, I used to hit people when I was young and that was how I dealt with it because I was pretty tough and scrappy. Um, I was really skinny, but I was strong. So I could, you know, I took down boys, anybody. And, (laughs) but then when I got to be in a, you know, in high school and junior high, I realized they can't keep hitting people. So I started (laughs) making fun of them sarcastically. Um, And that is sort of what led to you know, I think what I have, I think I'm, I don't know if I'm funny, but I think I'm sarcastic. Definitely.
1: But I mean, you know, that all comes from, I mean, you say that you don't label it a trauma, but like as a kid, when you're lashing out and doing those things, like that was very clearly you being angry at the world and what happened.
0: You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I was angry. I was angry for a long time, uh, Brad. I mean, I was angry well into my thirties and not, (laughs) yeah. And not just for my mother dying. I think I was more angry at how, how my stepmother and my father um, managed that death and, and how, or I would say did not manage that death. So I think it took me so long and, probably when I was about 30, I realized, you know, you have to, even if people aren't sorry, you have to somehow figure out how to just say, okay, you know what? That happened. I forgive you. I'm going to move on. Yeah, Because I was starting to lash out on my kids, which they you know, that's very bad. And I never wanted to do that. So, um, you know, it, it became, it became a learning process for me. And now I look at it and think, um, it was a really bad thing. And I think my life, was not necessarily you know oh mom and dad and everybody and you know all the Indian family get together and they all love each other well we did love each other but maybe they didn't she didn't love me at all my stepmother didn't love me but um it it you know it was it was something that I feel like yeah you know but it brought me to this point so it wasn't great but it made me tough and it made me strong and it made me who I am so I guess it was okay
1: well I mean it I don't know if it was okay, but it was right. Like it, it it happened. And so it's interesting with trauma. Like I'm in trauma therapy and Uh my shit fell apart around 42, 43. Like that was Uh. just sort of broke. And I've talked a lot about it on this show. Like there is a, there comes a moment when you sort of have to look it in the face and begin to reprocess that stuff because you can't just get past it. It's, I mean, if, if people could just get past it, nobody would experience trauma in their lives. Right. We just right. wake up and go, I don't right. want to deal with like, I'm over this. And you, you, one of the parts of that acceptance is being able to, like you said, not to forgive the other person, but to allow yourself to not carry their burden anymore. Right. Like right. your yeah. stepmom may not have loved you and, and you, you don't have to forgive her from that or for that, but you get to say that is not going to be a burden that I care. Like, that is what she did, not who I am.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think people have to do their own. Um, you know, I think that works for me. I, ha- I had to actually go through the process of forgiving her yeah. because, because that was the only way I could uh, be a good mother and stop being so petty and angry and defensive and so many of the things that were sort of coming up. But I don't think everyone has to say those words. I think right. Oh, did you say that to, to
1: her? Like, did you sit down with her?
2: Um, no, I didn't, but I did one time say it to my father and he got really mad at me. He didn't like it at all that he said, how, you know, how dare you, who are you to, who are you to say that you can forgive me? And I was like, all right, well, whatever.
1: But that's what I, that's what I mean. It's not about saying that to the other person. It is about giving yourself permission to feel that Yeah. and then then let yourself (laughs) go and go, I don't have to, I don't have to carry that burden with me anymore. And right,
2: exactly. Your dad can I be as that.
1: mad about that as he wants and that doesn't have to affect you anymore. It's a it's a exactly. profound and hard thing.
2: That that is really true. You have to figure out how to detach yourself from the emotions of what they what they churn up in you. And I think <laughs> however you have to do that whether yeah. it's saying I've forgiven them and moved on or just saying, you know, they don't matter to me or but you have to figure out how you can detach yourself from that you and I I'll be honest. I mean, uh it it shows up. Occasionally it'll just show up and I'm like, ah, yeah. what am I doing? You know. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah,
1: it's the it's the weird thing about trauma is even when you do the work, it's an it is a chronic disease. It is not like it is a thing you always have to pay attention to because the minute you think, Oh, I got this under control, some shit happens and you're on fire again. And you're like, yeah. okay, yeah, like none of this where did this come from?
2: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, I sort of think. Um, so, I sort of think in some ways, in general, a lot of people are experiencing, you know, with COVID. I think there's a lot of this going on now. And I think like people, you know, are wanting to, I hear people saying a lot, oh, 2020, let's just throw this year away and it's over. And I feel like saying, no, there's so many great things to be learned from a terrible, terrible year. Yeah. And what, you know, why don't we take the lessons from 2020 rather than just pretending like it didn't happen? Yeah. Because, you know, it, it was a terrible year and I'm sure you and I could agree and everybody in the world would agree <laughs> about that. But, you know, I, I have learned so many valuable lessons from, from COVID. And I, I hope in 2021, we don't forget those lessons. I hope we just don't pretend, what well, that never happened, let me just move on. No, I mean, this has been a profound year for the entire globe. Yeah. you know
1: Well, and it is a time and place when you have to sit with your thoughts, like there's mm-hmm. no place to go. So I think a lot of folks go a thousand miles an hour because the idea of sitting quietly with themselves is terrifying to them. And 2020 has been a whole lot of, oh shit, like I have to sit here. And, exactly. you know, like it's again, you don't wish a pandemic on anybody because this has sucked, but it has made everybody slow down and your world has shrunk and you've had to really think about like who you are and what matters. And that's, that's profound.
2: It is. And I mean, how, how great if I, yes, it, you know, many bad things happen, but I think what a great thing that has happened that we have had an entire year to make ourselves you know, face each other in the mirror and know, you know, people can't get their hair done. So they look like themselves. They can't get their eyelashes put on. So they look like themselves. Right. you know, like even that, that seems so, that seems like so strange to think, but that changes the way you communicate with someone when you're looking at them for no nails, no makeup, no face, and you know, guys with their beards on. And, you know, that's kind of cool in a way. It sort of strips you down just to, uh, very basic human level
1: and I think it has been an example of if you ever wondered what like structural racism and structural um, misogyny looks like there are not guys that are worried about their beards or going gray but there's a whole lot of like there is I got a whole twitter feed of like women who are like here's my gray hair like I'm just gonna like and (laughs) it's but it's like that is a it is a reveal for them, right? Like this is, this is a profound moment where they're accepting a thing. And like, it's hard not to look at that and go, guys, you understand that like, that is literally the definition of like systemic misogyny, that they can't look how they look without
0: apologizing for it.
2: It, Good point. (laughs) That's such a great point. That's, you know, and I mean, you, there's so many like uh, facets of COVID, but if we could sit and talk about that yeah. forever, because, because that's the truth. I mean, it's, it's amazing how many people had not really seen themselves because they were so covered up in it. I mean, physically seen themselves, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I mean, I know people who have never seen the color of their hair for years, or they've never seen themselves without eyelashes or nails or, you know, or extensions. I mean, so many things And I think, I mean, that's just a very basic one little point we could say, because it just goes on and on and on, you know? So in a way, I think that COVID is a great way, you know, I mean, I think that's my, my platform in life is about taking things that seem bad, and really saying, actually, what what can we learn that's great about this so-called yeah. bad situation? And in fact, I have that, that's the, at the very beginning of the book, you know, people put in, um, you know, put in quotation marks, you know, they use wise sayings. I actually, I mean, I am a, I, I do have a strong faith. So, um, and that's evident, I think, in in the book. I, ha- I, um, I you know, I don't really say I'm uh, religious, I say, I have a strong faith and, um, I do use a verse from the Bible and the and the verse is uh, Oh my gosh, I forgot it. Uh, wait,
1: hold <laughs> on. It. I'm going to, that's exactly how it happens.
2: <laughs> exactly. Well, that's just called getting old,
1: but
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. But hold on. I'm going to, I'm just going to read it to you. Cause it's, um, it is, it says, but as for you, you devised against me evil and God devised it for good. And I I really do sort of live by that because I do think that things that people assume are going to be terrible and evil and rotten and they sort of, you know, just swallow that whole, I feel like there's always a better, there's a bigger purpose in my life and it's definitely not what human beings can do, you know? And um, so, yeah, I do think, I do, I always, I don't always succeed at it, but I try <laughs> yeah. hard to say I mean, that. was none,
1: just, none of us do. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. And so, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think COVID is all terrible. I mean, but it certainly had his bad parts and made, man, that was, it was, it's been a tough year.
1: Yeah. So as a kid, you're sort of rambunctious and like, does that change when you get to high school or like? are you sort of like through your teen years
2: well so, a little trouble? <laughs> yeah no so um i had a my dad was really strict So, and I don't mean a little strict, uh, I mean more strict than an average Indian father. Um, You know, we weren't allowed to do anything social. So I literally was, you know, I call it lockdown in the book because my sisters and I, in particular, he was really strict with, uh, he was strict with my brothers as well, but much more with my sisters and I, and I, I, you know, I went through entire, well, into college, but without ever really socializing, I wasn't allowed to go shopping or uh, to football games or to join teams. Or uh, basically, my dad had this real kind of weird sort of fixation on men and boys, and he just didn't want us to have anything to do with them. So, his way of kind of coping <laughs> with that is just not to allow us to go anywhere. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one really interesting example, and um, this this just shows you the kind of weirdness of my life, but I was a nurse working in, you know, a full grown nurse by day. Uh, You know, I wouldn't say saving people's lives, but if I wanted to be dramatic, I could say saving people's lives. Um, I was working in the children's hospital. I had a whole job. People thought I was an adult. I was, you know, making an adult's money and I would come home and I couldn't go out of my yard. I couldn't turn on the television without permission. Um, I, so that I, my phone calls, I couldn't call men, they couldn't call me. So it was, you know, he was very, and yes, I know I'm a grown person. And you know, that's sort of the, uh, what happens in the book is a lot of people will ask, why didn't you just walk away? Well, you're all I'm also an immigrant and immigrants don't do that they don't just walk away from their family so um
1: so were you living at the house? like you still stayed in in your family please
2: of course (laughs) I I that would have been a big note I wanted to leave so bad but you know I was brought up that you leave when you get married and that so when I got married that was my my great escape you know I was like yay
1: so all of your like all of your siblings also lived in the house until they got married
2: no, my brothers didn't.
1: Well, um, yeah, I meant the, I meant your sisters, obviously. My
2: sisters did. Yeah. yeah. It, it, wow. but, you know what? Yeah, I'll even tell you, my brothers had a hard time. I mean, he didn't want them to go either. He really wanted them to stay in the house until they got married. But, you know, they they didn't. Yeah. And, you know, women are different. And I think especially, you know, the way I was raised, I mean, maybe I wouldn't have done this now in, in 2020, but back then, Sure. I, didn't, I didn't have that kind of, you know, I was young. I didn't have a lot of courage and confidence to step out. And I don't even know if I would do it now. I, I, my, I mean, my father's not, has passed on now. He, um, he died in 2019, but I don't even know if he was alive and that same situation. I might end up doing exactly the same thing because it's so ingrained in me to, yeah. you know, that respect. And my father said that it, it would be hard for me. I might do it but it would be difficult.
1: It's it, it's interesting um you know this is one of those cultural differences I have uh several friends from Korea and they're they're the same way right like yeah. uh, you you stay with the family and it is no matter a couple of them ended relationships because um it just got to be too difficult to manage both their romantic relationship and this sort of family pull that i mean they said like i don't want to do this but this is what i'm supposed to do and i think that is a really difficult thing for people outside of that culture to understand even though we all have our own peccadillas right we all do (laughs) things that other people are like it's weird and then we see something we're like well how do you do that and you're like well you assholes do the same thing right like you got your own
2: well, you know, it's so funny that you say that, Brad, because, you know, when I was going through the process of writing this book, a lot of people who, were, um, who, who weren't Indian or from an immigrant background read uh, my earlier uh, earlier drafts of this book and said, I just don't understand Alishabha you were a grown registered nurse. Why didn't you just walk away? And I was like, you, it's so hard to explain. And then my, uh, the editor who, who edited this book for my publisher, um, her name's Raquel. She's, um, uh, Dominican. And I, when she was reading it, she was like, girl, I know, you know, you could not, she was like, you're, if I even tried walking away, my I wouldn't even have a mouth anymore. Cause my mom would have whacked me so hard. And I she said, I completely understand. And I said, Yeah, but how can I make people understand who aren't? And she said, they just there's nothing you can do to make people understand that. They just have to accept that as part of it's, you know, it's an immigrant experience. You know, you just are tied to your family. Yeah. And there's nothing, it's hard to explain it, but that's just what you are
1: yeah it doesn't i mean even if you weren't an immigrant right like even if you were even if you'd grown up in india I, I, that it's you know, yeah. like that would that would happen right like this, it is culture it's only an immigrant It only happened here because they happened to be here it didn't yeah. happen because they were in america right like it's and it i think that that's one of the things that is one it's important that we sort of read stories of other folks so that you can understand like oh okay like this this is your normal um, and I can't come at you and be like, well, that doesn't make sense because that assumes that my normal is the right normal, right? <laughs> right? And yeah, that, yeah. That, your, that your normal isn't. Um, yeah. So I'm assuming then, when you go to college, you are staying close to home.
2: Right inside the house.
1: <laughs> 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 Where did you end up yeah. going to school?
2: Oh, so that's a whole nother part. Uh, that's sort of interesting with my um, background is that, you know, so... You know, Indians in general, you know, they value education greatly and, you know, you want to send your kid to the, you know, fanciest school you can possibly send them to. I mean, that's the typical story of of Indians And, and most Indians are like that. Well, my, uh, at that time, by that time that I was in college, my stepmother had sort of taken hold of the way that the, the way that the house would be run. And, um, one of the things was that, um, you know, our, our, she made sure, okay, so I'm, I'm a full grown registered nurse, but I'm not keeping any of my money and neither is any of my siblings. She, you know, we, we had to turn over our checks every single time, you know, she would, she knew when the checks were coming and we would ask them now, why did we keep doing It goes, I don't know. We just did it because we, I don't know. I mean, none of us can really answer that question. We don't know why we didn't just say, hey, I just earned this, I'm keeping it. That never occurred to us. We just kept turning them over. So my thought was, all right, that'll be for my college. But it turned out that that never happened. And I ended up having to sort of um, gre- you know, work my way up. I started at a VOTAC because that was all I could afford. At that time, it was a dollar a day to go really? to Votech, Yes. And, um, I went to Votech. Um, that was what I could afford. It was a one year LPN program. Um, I couldn't afford the books. So, um, and neither would she ever give me any money for it. So I just had to reuse my sister's books from 15 years ago. Um, so you're, and, so you're
1: 18 and just going to this one year, like trade yeah. school to become, to work in healthcare.
2: Yes. I mean, that was all I had. I couldn't really, I, you know, like I said, that's, that's all I could and yep. and that was, I didn't even have, frankly, I didn't even have hardly a dollar a day, but nonetheless, that was mm-hmm. what they were willing. That was what she was willing to pay for. Um, and,
1: and, and have then, your sisters all taken that same, similar path? Yeah. So like so you're radical. just, you're just on the assembly line.
2: <laughs> in fact, my sisters and I followed the exact same path and I'm a writer now, my other sisters in. Um, my other sister, uh, Hannah, is in. Um, she's in public health. My one sister did stay a nurse. She's a. Um, she's a, a, a nurse midwife. But my oldest sister, Miriam, she went through it as well, but she did not stay a nurse. She actually, um, she moved back to India and she started, um, she was making, you know, uh, in education, making schools for people in villages and educating and those. So we all sort of went different paths. One sister stayed a nurse. And I mean, we do all, you know, I still work as a nurse, um, but I like to write. So it's not that I... I don't, I'm not a nurse, but, um, we've got different paths. I would say.
1: Yeah. But I mean, Uh, like the, the way out of the house was the same way.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the way out of the house was to get married.
1: (laughs) I'm talking about college, like
2: oh, college. Right. You're, I I see you understand that because we did want to get out. Like, how do we get out? Right. Yeah.
1: And like, since you shared books and you all just did the same thing, like, okay, that worked for her. We're going to just do this.
2: Exactly. And it kept her in line. So let's just keep doing that. And then, um, then I went, I eventually went and got my RN at, but I could the only thing that they would pay for would be community college because they weren't going to pay for college. So. Well,
1: how long after you graduate from the one year program, like you start working immediately?
2: Yes. immediately started working. I was making, I was making full-time literally, I was making probably enough money for a man to support a family not that I got any of it, yeah. but, um, <laughs> but I did. And I, you know, I didn't even care. Cause I was like, at that point, I just was so happy to get out of the house and be with right. adults and people who treated me like an adult. And I had an adult job. I worked at a nursing home and that was what I, and then I did that for a year. And then I went back to community college and I got my RN. Once I did that, I went to, I became a peds nurse and I've been doing that since then I've never, I've always been in pediatrics. Yeah. Um, but so you, then when
1: you, I, you had finished college then like you sort of by the time you were 25 or whatever, 24, you were, had a no. degree working full time. Well,
2: I had a degree, I had a associate's degree from, uh, community college. I gotcha. didn't really finish my degree degree until, uh, 2000. And, um, was it 2002 when I moved here to New Jersey because I had kids I couldn't really. And then I went and got a degree in English and history. Yeah. I, I was so, like, okay, I'm not going to do nursing.
1: So when you, so when you get the two-year degree, like what then happens between, are, are you just working full-time and like.
2: Yeah. Then I was working life? full, yep. Working full-time, not living life so much, but occasionally sneaking, <laughs> sneaking out, you know, by then I was a little older and I knew how to do things like sneak out. And, you know, I, I sort of started just saying, this is ridiculous. And so I, I did do some things, but nothing you know that my my girlfriends my my lifelong girlfriends that I met back when I was a teenager and are still my friends to this day about you know they were out having a good time and you know this was when Prince just started in Minneapolis and oh, one of, right yeah yeah and one of my friends even my my closest friend in life um uh Anna, she even dated his bass player I mean they were like in the scene and here I was going could I please just go? No, you got to be home by 12. Okay. So I guess I can't go anywhere. I mean, 12 was one that was, I had to be home by 12 because, you know, three to 11 that if I was going to lie that I was going to work, I had to be, oh. I had to be home. by twelve. <laughs> you
1: You're working at, you were working at swing shift. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> so sometimes I just say, yeah, I got to work three to 11 and really I'd go out with them. But you know, nothing really started until like one o'clock in the morning. So,
1: <laughs> back in the good old days, now <laughs> that shit's forget one o'clock in the morning.
2: Yeah, what? <laughs> I don't even know when does when do things start now.
1: I've, I, no, I mean, we're in COVID. It, it doesn't.
2: Oh, now, but <laughs> yeah. in, but, but pre-COVID, I, I wasn't going. I, I don't know because I yeah. haven't gone out like that in years. So, I no, I haven't seen. I haven't
1: going. seen one o'clock outside in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> So how do you end up then um, getting back to school? Like, it sounds like you're just sort of like, uh, clearly you meet somebody, you have kids. Like, are you, are you thinking you're going to be a writer or are you just kind of like doing your life?
2: No, I always, I mean, I've, so I've got journals from when I was like seven years old. <laughs> I've been writing and writing my whole life. And I think writing saved me in many ways because there was so much happening in my life that we're not even you know we can't even talk about in this short time which is why I wrote a book about it um there's so much that happened that you there's no way that you can actually verbalize that and I had to just start writing in order as a salvation almost you know um and then I just kept that up I just kept writing and um I always in my mind you know there I have a little part in my book and it says no i'm sorry in one of my journals when i was about mm, i think i must have been like 20 i think i wrote something about you know just wait i'm going to write a i'm i'm going to write a book about all this <laughs> <laughs> and i felt like saying oh my gosh i actually did that um but yeah and then i then i started to write i i did decide consciously i'm going to do something about educating myself Outside of healthcare, you know, getting, you know, taking some courses in literature, taking some courses in creative writing. And that was when I started, I went back to Rutgers um, and I got my four-year degree in English and history. And I think that sort of made me, I took this class in creative writing and I was so scared scared because they told us we had to read it out loud and I almost died I was like oh my gosh you're gonna hate this and it was the first time someone ever said wow that was really good and I was like what really really you mean and ever since then then I I mean I have always thought I want to be a writer but I'd never had any confidence to say okay except for when that happened to me. So when that happened to me, I thought actually I might maybe what? Okay. So then I started sending in things and of course they all got rejected.
1: (laughs) How how old were you when you, when you started taking those courses?
2: Oh, I I was in my uh, let's see, when did I graduate from Rutgers? Uh, I was like 42.
1: So like you, like there's a quite a bit of time. There's 15, 16 years between finishing that associate's degree. Yes. And going back. So, and you, you had, Two kids, right along the way. So you're yep, working, I, having kids, and
2: yep, doing all that moving. I moved, I think, seven times. That was oh you know God. coming to yeah. So you know, <laughs> I lived in India for a while. I mean, but you just didn't have I when you have children. I didn't have time to sit down and say, well, you know, I mean, or I well, how about this? Women do it now because, but I wasn't all that together enough to do it back then, and um, I was more focused on my kids and working and all the other things that go into yeah. a household. And then I finished in, I finished with Rutgers, and then I just kind of, I did keep writing, kept getting rejected over and over and over again. But I somehow in my mind, I had decided someone, one person at least has told me that they think I'm good <laughs> at this. So, so I'm just going to keep going. And then I did my master's at um, Fairleigh Dickinson here in, in New Jersey, and I did it in writing. I did a master of fine arts in writing. Sure. And I think that was what really made me say, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I started writing in a very, very serious, much more serious
1: way. And what was the impetus to go back to Rutgers? Was there something that happened or were you just like, this is, was it just an itch that you were like, I've always wanted to do this and I'm going to do it.
2: Yeah. I think that's what it was. I, I I've always wanted to, I, I didn't say I want uh, I want to write. I knew that, but I, I knew you don't have to have an education to be a writer. I mean, obviously you could just write, but I had never had a chance to take those really cool classes. You know, those, those classes that just were really inspirational to me, you know, taking some of those film courses or those literature courses. I never took those because I had never really been to college. Yeah. Um, I took, I took an art history, I took art history course and I was like, Oh, I want, they had Records they have art history one and art history two. Mm-hmm. And I ran out of time. I couldn't take art history two, <laughs> and I was so upset because it was amazing to learn about the history of how people you know made this art and where I mean I just I felt like I was just sort of drinking up knowledge that I had not really had. Yes. Yeah. And it it really made me love reading. I, I've read incessantly since I was a child because I wasn't allowed to watch TV. So only the library was open to me. yeah. And so books have just been like a salve. You know, I've just, it's been something that has soothed me, you know, just getting into books and reading about other places that I can never go to. But when I finished at Rutgers, it just really, I was like, oh my goodness, there's so many different ways to tell a story. You don't have to tell a story in the way that I've been reading because they expose me to all sorts of crazy ways of writing. Not that I can do it. I, I can't write like that, but it gave me courage to say, you know what? You don't have to write as well as, you know, uh, you know, Charlie Bronte and you can't write like that. Right. I can't. So let me, there's other ways of expressing and telling your story.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that, I mean, look, all of this makes sense. Like being the youngest, being growing up in a family where there's trauma having sort of tight controls over what you can do and see that you become this observer who's trying to understand things and books are ways to transport yourself and travel and journals are a way to experience your thoughts in a place that's safe. Like all of that feels like an inevitability that you end up writing, right? Like like, it, or that, or that books and that's in things like art history that where you're being transported into other places and seeing the world through other people's eyes, like that feels like an inevitability. And like, of course you would gravitate towards that.
2: Yeah. I think you know what I, I mean, this is sort of off the subject, but I have to say, you know one thing I sort of like just came to understand is how much writing and reading saved me, but I also started thinking about how do people who are illiterate like I just made me feel so like strongly for that. I was thinking, I mean what would I have done? I would have just shrivelled up and died if I couldn't have read and written in all those years. And then I think, what about people who don't have that outlet? They don't know how to read or they don't know how to write. And I think how, like, what do they do? Do they create art? Do they sing? Like, how do they get it out of their system?
1: I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I come from an oral culture. Like I'm fairly certain my grandmother didn't go to school past fifth grade, Um, but she could tell a story, you know, like there were always musical instruments around the house. And so I, you know, but I think that to the power of storytelling is that, even if you aren't able to write, right? Even if you are illiterate, you still find ways to express these inner things inside you. Even if you're not aware, that's why you're doing it. Right. right? Like, I don't yeah. think my grandmother would have ever said like, well, this is how I process through the trauma of my life. She just told stories about the family and that was how she kept the family in her heart. Right. You right. know? So, I mean, yeah. it's one of those like life finds a way.
2: <laughs> exactly. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> And, and, and I guess, you know, list. you can list, you can be a really great listener. If you couldn't read, I guess you could be this amazing, you know, listener and just absorbing other people's stories. And that's how you experience other things yeah. that you have, you know, but I mean, that's what I, to me, if I hadn't had books, yeah, I, I think I would have, I, I don't know what would have happened to me.
1: So my, I th- my therapist has flat out told me if it wasn't for writing she's like, you probably would have killed yourself. And I'm like, I 100%, I believe that. <laughs> I 100% believe it. It's, yep. how I, it's how I process trauma long before I knew that's what I was doing. You know, right. getting right. that shit out of your head and putting it somewhere where it could exist exactly. outside of you.
2: <laughs> I, I, well, I think you and I are very similar to that because <laughs> that's, I, I did, I definitely use those journals. You know, there's yeah. parts of journals where, you know, I've taken the pen and gone through four pages because I'm so angry.
1: <laughs> yeah, and because it has to go somewhere, right? Uh, I interviewed Alison yeah. Wood, who wrote a book called Being Lolita about um, this abusive relationship. And and mm-hmm. she said very you know, beautifully, and I've said it on the show before, writing wasn't cathartic, right? It, writing isn't therapy. It doesn't make it better, but it allows you to take that story and make it your own and frame it so that it mm-hmm. doesn't control you, right? And like, you still got to do the work to get past this stuff, but like, to me that's anytime I have people tell me they write journals I'm like well I'm like that's where pain goes
2: absolutely yeah <laughs> absolutely
1: yeah I mean and happiness and stuff too but like it, pain is the driving motivator behind journals I think
2: yes I, I do think so I mean and it, it, it is such a I I love that humans can do that we can express ourselves and 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 then you can take that and help other people to express themselves. I just, I think it's so amazing that we have these methods to kind of cope yeah. that other creatures in the world don't have, you know?
1: Yeah. So. When you graduate from Rutgers, how much, how, what's the time between that and going to the MFA program?
2: Oh, uh, pretty, I would say in a a year and a half. Yeah. So
1: you're just like doing it. You went back to college and now you're doing the early 20 something like I'm just plowing (laughs) through as much college as I can. Let's do this now.
2: Yeah. Well, it really sort of inspired me, you know, going to Rutgers inspired me to say, well, like I said, that one person told me I could write and I was like, fine, I'll just take that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I will not listen to anybody else. I'm a writer. You said it. Let's go.
2: (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so then, yeah, I entered the MFA pretty, I would say within a year and a half, it was quick.
1: How many years um, a but, one or two year program?
2: It was two years.
1: Okay. That's and good. So like you had some time to stretch out and really experience it.
2: Yes. And you know, and I, and you know, I had to write this thesis, which, um, you know, was, was so much fun. I was like, wait, why do people hate doing this? And I, I, and you know, the first time in my life I went to school and at Rutgers and at Fairly Dickinson, I'm not like blowing my horn, but, and it was, it wasn't hard. In fact, it was so enjoyable and I did so well at it. I mean, I really, really got, I got, you know, really good grades. I, and nursing school had been a struggle because it was all math and science and that wasn't where my mind was. Yeah. Although I love being a nurse, it's not that I don't like being a nurse. I do like being a nurse, but my mind was, Another kind of a mind. Yeah. So, you know, taking chemistry was, you know, why <laughs> are familiar. you getting a C minus? Yeah. And my dad would be like, why are you getting a C minus? I'm like, well, because I just, yeah. I don't get it.
1: And you're like, well, that's pretty good for not knowing what the hell I'm doing. C minus, it's like an A. It's like a dumb person, A, dad. That's what it is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I got a few of those on my report. I got a few, I got a few Fs on my report card as well. Oh, I got
2: those too. Yeah. yeah that was, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's one of the, one of the enduring themes in my life. And I, I, this, a boss said it to me one time and I thought I need a T t-shirt. He said, you can, Whenever you set your mind to something, you do a great job. You just don't always set your mind to it. And I thought, <laughs> yep, nope, that's a hundred percent right. You have <laughs> nailed me one hundred percent.
2: Well, That's funny. Yeah. Sometimes
1: I set my mind to not giving a shit, and exactly. like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, that's an A
1: plus, buddy. <laughs> you know. Like, uh, <laughs> so when you're in the MFA program, are you do you work on what becomes the book, or do you is are you working on something completely different?
2: Yeah, no, I did. I, I did not work on what I, I, this is what happened when I was in the MFA program. I met, um, Jeff Allen, who is a mentor. He was my, one of my professors. He's not there anymore. Um, uh, but he did write, he, he wrote a little, um, you know, promo for the book. He did write that for me. Um, and he's a great writer. He, you know, he's written some amazing, you know, he's written song of the shank and, um, a couple other, he, you know, uh, his last book was like a slave narrative. Um, and really great books. Um, so he's, you know, but he's one of those writers that I don't know how he writes like that and I can't do it. And I wish I could do it, but I just don't know how he gets his words to come out in that beautiful way. Um, so he was like someone I just aspired and he sort of was the one that said, Alicia, you know, you're writing all these short stories. You should take this particular, he picked on a very particular short story and he said, um, you really should be writing a book. And I said, I, you know, I, I only can write short stories. That's all I can do. And he said, no, Alicia, but you really should write a book. So I did and no one liked it. So it just sat there and, um, nothing's happened to it. And it's just sitting in my computer and, and it was just, and it was terrible. I have to say,
1: this Um, is a very common theme. Yeah. Almost everybody I've interviewed on this show has that novel
2: exactly exactly and I you know who knows I might take it out and try you know try reviving it but I don't yeah. know it's just a novel that had to be written
1: no. that's and some then, shit that after you die and they're looking for something else they're like well here's her unpublished book
2: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, it's and, unpublished
1: for a reason guys <laughs> yeah
2: and then um then that that sort of was there and I tried for a long time and that just never took you know I, I also never really got it professionally edited which I was, was a mistake I maybe it would have done better I don't know nonetheless that's just there and then but that's I, but
1: that's where you learn to write a book I mean that's the thing yes. that everybody has like to write a book you actually have to write a book and that first one is not good right yes. and so it either sits in a drawer or you rewrite it 10 times until it's your 10th book
2: Right, exactly, (laughs) exactly. And then this book um, came out of, um, so later on, I was asked um, to contribute an essay to an anthology, um, which I did. And that anthology was, uh, it was called Letters to My Mother. And um, I wrote a letter for the first time to my mom, my mom who no longer existed. And I think that was the first time I ever wrote honestly about not having her. Up to this moment in my life, I had pretty much just sort of covered up everything that had happened. Although as, you know, we just talked about earlier, you know, I'd gotten past it, but had I ever talked about it, not even to my children. Yeah, yeah. I had never talked about it. I had just pretended like it never existed and just moved on.
1: Yeah. Um, and I'm somebody sure somebody the, might ask if that means you really got past it.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I just, I, I real. I don't think I did.
1: Yeah. No, Burying exactly that would, shit in the corners of your mind is not getting past it.
2: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I think, I, I think when, when you, I wrote that essay, I just, it just sort of po- yeah. it was only an essay I wrote the essay, I finished it. And then I just kept writing.
1: Yeah. And then everything broke that broke the seal. Exactly. Yeah.
2: And then this book came out and, um, it, you know, first draft, I happened to be in India in the Himalayas. I wrote that in three weeks, the first draft. Wow. And, um, it was, it was fine. It was nothing like what it is now. Um, but that's how it, it It took me six years to get to where it is yeah. right now. No,
1: that feels exactly right. Yeah. Three <laughs> weeks to get the draft out. And you know, one of my old friends used to refer to that as the first draft is based on a true story, right? Like it's never, <laughs> it's never really all the stuff and you really need somebody to help you dig in and like the parts you summarize, have them be like, that summary needs to be more than a summary, right? Like you right. need to dig into these areas because I think, You know, one of the things that I think that I've come to know about writing is that the mind and the body are resistant to digging into those traumatic things. And so when you're writing it, it's like, well, I don't want to, you sort of unconsciously don't realize you're skipping over the parts that are actually the story. And it's very easy to write the parts that aren't the story.
2: That, okay, you must have been sitting next to me because (laughs) that is so true. And I, you know, and I kept thinking, then the editor would say, well, what about this? And I'd be like, no, it's fine. Yeah. No, it's good. What are you talking about?
1: Uh, Nobody needs to know that.
2: (laughs) Exactly. And she'd say, you need to slow this down. I'd say, what does that mean? I'm forget that, you know, but (laughs) exact. And I would, you know, I was like all into these other parts that were really easy for me to write about, but yeah, so exactly right. That is. And also, you know, the process of having them cut things that I thought, wait, this is like the best part. You just cut that story and and make me rewrite and write more about things that I just was like, well, why don't you just put the other part in? Yeah. No.
1: (laughs) That's not how that shit works. No, it's, you know, some of that is, I know I've been a professional writer for 25 years. I've interviewed hundreds of people and I edit. And so, like I know that because I've heard this story from so many people and I've experienced it from both sides, right? Like I already know when I, I just wrote a first draft of an essay and I'm like, well, 80% of this isn't going to be in the piece. Cause I'm sure I've skipped over the really important parts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: Exactly. That That's why I mean, I, you know, a lot of people don't believe in getting their work professionally edited. And I, I, I just believe in it so much because I, know and i have on my computer and i even have some printings of what this was at the beginning and how awful it just was terrible it was just terrible terrible (laughs) yeah and the only reason it is where it is now is because of professional editors who can take a look at it you know i i always say a a professional editor like you know the work you said you're an editor so, so the work that you do it's like going inside this house and Somebody who says, you know, you could take this wall down, take that, move the kitchen over here, and you're like, what? I don't even see that, but they see it, you know, and and for me, I, you know, and also we're too close to our own work, we can't see where the walls and the sinks need to be moved, you know.
1: And you're too close to the damage and the trauma. I mean, stories by their definition come out of pain and happiness and like all those emotions are really overwhelming, and it it is hard. You need. Um, you need somebody there with you. It's There's a book about training snipers. And I tell this to writers that I work oh. with all the time. For a long time, for most of the military history, snipers operated alone. And the military realized that the best way to have a sniper, you have somebody there with them, a spotter. And the spotter is the one that actually tells the person to fire. And that way, oh. the sniper can disengage from the emotion, because you're looking at a person. So you can disengage and say, I didn't kill that person, I was following orders. And the person giving the order says, well, I didn't fire the gun. And it allows everybody to dissociate from the emotional impact of what is a very personal killing. Wow. And I don't like to equate war to writing because they're different things. But I'm like, that is what an editor does with a writer. It helps you dissociate from the emotions because if you're dealing with trauma and pain and things like that, you need somebody to give you permission to do that so you can be safe with it.
2: Absolutely. I agree with you. It is. And it's just, you know, another person can see so many. Well, as you said, we gloss over, you know, yeah. someone like, well, we don't want to talk about that. And they, a good editor just pinpoints where you've just, you know, uh oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Let's go back to that.
0: Yeah.
1: It's, it, it's, it's such a fascinating tool. And I've realized, you know, as I've gotten older, that I'm a much better editor than I am a writer, because I'm not trying to edit it how I would do it. I'm trying to help you find the path to the story you want to tell. That's the best way for you to tell it. Correct. As opposed to like, well, why didn't you write this? Like, well, God damn it. If I wanted to write that, I would have written it. You know, right. like, yeah. <laughs> nothing drives me crazier than people that like edit that way. Exactly.
2: Uh, because, exactly. you know,
1: your story is personal. Right right Um,
2: I I think I think I I, I'm really happy with the way it turned out and I don't I know 100% I would have never gotten there by myself (laughs) so I'm glad for the editors that helped me
1: well it's been so lovely talking to you like your journey to writing like uh, it's just it's so fascinating and interesting and uh, I can't wait to pick up the book oh I know like to hear that part of the story um, that sort of fills in some of the blanks that we didn't talk about today, I think is going to be really great. Is it, is it primarily about your relationship? Is it primarily about the loss of your mother or is it?
2: It's actually, I would say it's called mama G, which, you know, a lot of people are pronouncing it wrong, but it's, you know, just mama (laughs) and then G G means respected and that it's a Hindi word. Um, But it is about really my Hope to connect with my mother. and it, it, it takes me through um the beginning is my my wish, and at the end is what I find out. And in order to do all that, I had to go through the story of what happened when she left me. Yeah, and when she left me, everything that happened and everything I come to realize. And at the end, I make, you know, I draw a conclusion and I come to a realization which I'm not going to tell you because you said you're going to read it. Mm-hmm.
1: So. <laughs> and we don't we don't want to give away the endings of books on this program. <laughs> yes,
2: that's right. um yeah, so that's really it is it is about her but it's really um uh, about my uh, my journey to try and find her and and you know, find who she was. I mean, you know, at 3 you don't, you don't really know your yeah. mother. So, it's my attempt let's put it that it's an attempt to connect with my mother. That's really what
1: it is. That sounds so fascinating. And so, I mean, it's such a profound part of everybody's life. Like that relationship with your mom is foundational to like who you are, whether, I mean, whether it's a good relationship, a bad relationship, whether it's one that you don't get to have because of circumstances. Um, We don't, it's, we don't talk enough about, I mean, obviously every parent relationship forms you, but there is something very special about a mother and child bond.
2: Isn't that the truth, Brad? I, I do, now that I'm a mom, I know that is so true. I mean, mothers are, fathers are very, very important too. But um, I think people have very profound, you know, yeah. why, do, why do football players always say, hi, mom? Yeah. Uh, you know, it is really something, you know, a mother is really, it's, it's a relationship that I don't know why people... Um, you know, like they say, oh, my mom's my friend. I always tell my kids, you've got plenty of friends. I just want to be your mom. Right. That's really way more important. Only I can do that, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, a big part of my therapy is around, you know, that, that relationship. And, you know, my therapist is a big believer, which means I am also a big believer, that that sort of that bond is a thing that you have to navigate your whole life. Um, right. So writing a book about that profoundness, I think, is a thing that everybody will understand on some level.
2: I, I do think so. I think, I think that they will, there's been a lot, I've gotten a lot of really interesting reviews, early reviews. And um, a lot of people have said that to me that, you know, it's reminded them of something they had or didn't have with their mother. And, yeah. you know, and I think, and, and, obviously since you, that's what you just voiced too, that that's been a big part of your therapy. Um, see, I mean, it is, it really resonates. Mothers resonate. Come on. <laughs>
1: Well, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for coming Thank on the program you, and spending an hour with me. I appreciate it. I um, had
2: such a great time. Yeah, Thank this was lovely. I hope
1: me. I hope we get to do it again soon.
2: Absolutely. And I look forward to uh, keeping in touch with you on Instagram. I see all your dog pictures all the time. Yeah.
1: And people are only there for the dog pictures. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's right. Well, there you have it. That was Alicia Bahak, whose book, Mama Mamaji, is out right now. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that. She's fantastic and wonderful, and it is always nice to laugh with people as you talk about really hard things, um, and she's just such a wonderful spirit. I'm so happy to have her on the program. Before we get out of here, just a couple of reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors, I asked: Leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts, and tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear. And if you can't wait for our new episodes, they're out every Monday and Thursday. You can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet.